anybody does work out how to open the window, they'll have, everybody will be your friend. <laughs> so our final speaker, um, before we have a chance to, to feedback and reflect together, is Hugh Grant Peterkin, who's an NHS adult and older adult psychiatrist who has also trained in group psychotherapy. And he's currently a fellow in medical education working on materials to support medical undergraduates to ensure their well-being. And he has a long-standing interest in working with victims of trauma, most frequently asylum seekers in immigration detention, but also in the community. He's a trustee of the organisation Medical Justice, as well as MEDACT, and is on the Royal College of Psychiatrists working group on mental health of asylum seekers and refugees. And he's also trained in theatre and has a love of theatre and performing arts. <laughs> and he's going to be speaking about the impact of trauma on individuals as well as at societal level in his talk entitled Groups Under Pressure, Psychoanalytic Thinking, Groups and Climate Change. Um, yeah, so I, I have, thank you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I, uh, that's wind to your sails. Yeah, I, I've learned the lesson. I should really. I don't know. I don't remember writing that blurb at all or where it came from. I certainly <laughs> would write far less in future. That sounded really um, sort of full of myself. Um, I'm going to do a very quick plug first, which is to say, if you haven't already, please consider joining MedAct. So downstairs is a membership store. If you join today, you get a free bag, which is very fetching, very helpful. Um, I personally became a member fairly recently, only about 18 months ago, and I see it as an incredibly important voice for kind of a progressive healthcare professionals. So whichever branch of a healthcare professionals you come from, uh, come along and join us. Um, that's the plug. Um, I'm a little different from the previous two speakers, um, only insofar as I'm not probably an expert in either of the the fields that I'm going to be touching on. I'm going to try and draw things together and then throw them out to you. So Lisa, who you heard first, is probably the UK expert on heat and wood. And, and Sally's written amazing things. So I'm, I'm doing something slightly different, which is to draw together two things that I'm interested in and that I've worked with and then sort of throw them out to you. So I'll only do about 10 minutes with what I talk about. And in order to just reduce my anxiety at the very beginning, I wanted to know if there's any group therapists in the room. <laughs> now, of course, you can, you don't have to tell me, but I'm going to be talking about group therapy, and I'm not a fully qualified group therapist. So if there are any out there, they might actually be able to help me out. Are there any group therapists in the room? Great. Okay. <laughs> that is really good news for me. Probably some therapists? No? Go oh, well. Okay. Oh, sorry, of course. You, so, Okay, um, that's brilliant. Carte blanche. I can do what I say what I like. Um, not quite. Um, it's helpful for me to ask that because what I'm going to begin with, I'm going to begin with just a bit of um, a description of group therapy, which I have found compelling and I think has something useful and interesting to say around climate change. And then I'm going to talk a tiny bit about trauma and then I'm going to finish there. So, so some of the initial few slides, we're a bit of a whistle-stop tour around some of the key figures within the thinking around group therapy. Um, I will put my email up at the end, and if you wish to email me, I can give you all of the references. I realised I hadn't sort of referenced these slides as assiduously as I should have done, so I will do that, and I can send you the references if you would like them. So, just before we sort of start the few slides properly, um, I wanted to get you... Um, 
to just think about a couple of different things, which is, and for those of you who might be sociologists or political scientists or study this kind of thing, which is newer to me as a medic, is how are we connected? How are we connected and allied to that? What is your experience of groups? Because a lot of where we work in healthcare and what I encounter therapeutically is about the individual relationship. And it was a revelation to me to kind of break that and keep thinking relentlessly about the multitude of groups of which we are members. I would you don't have to actually, I was gonna do this where people um, chatted to their neighbor, shared something and threw it back, but I think that would use more time and there's a lot more of you than I expected. But I would just like to give you 10 seconds to think about a positive experience of being in a group. Just, just bring one to mind about anything that you can feel has been a positive experience of being part of any group. Now, I won't define what that group is. And I'd also like you to think about any negative experiences you've had of groups. And I think that they can be some of the most powerful in our lives because that sense of affirmation and connectedness and, and being part of something is so potent, yet also the feelings of exclusion, I think, particularly around groups, can be exquisitely painful. Um, so, um, what sort of groups do we need now and how can they survive? So that steps, my last thought is into the sociological. Those are my sort of first thoughts, I'm not gonna answer them, but they're things that we can think about afterwards if we wish. I stole this next slide from a lady called Rosemary Randall, who's hugely impressive, uh, and I sort of credit her at the bottom, but I think it's a helpful uh, slide to help us kind of, for you to think about where I'm coming at from this. So if you go out there and you start thinking about what's out there in terms of psychology and climate change, you'll find a reasonable amount in the top right hand corner, okay? Which is around conscious, so i.e. what things that we are aware of, you know, cognitive patterns, all the stuff that's around maybe thinking about CBT as a modality of therapy, and around the individual. Where I'm gonna take you for the next 10 minutes is somewhere down here, okay? So there's not very much going on in terms of thinkers uh, and, and work around it. Psychosocial studies is an emerging field. I'd encourage you to look at Sasha Rose Neal, who's a great professor um, who's doing some interesting work around this, about trying to draw together the wider sociological phenomena, whatever they may be, movements around civil rights, feminism, all these gentrification, urbanization, and how these then impact upon our unconscious as well as our conscious functioning. You have to kind of jump on board with the existence of the unconscious first, but that's, that's a whole nother discussion. Um, so, um, just to tell you where this comes from, in-group therapy, which is where this first bit of thinking comes from, so this is the question, becomes a bit difficult as to how applicable some of these concepts are, because they're formed from a particular environment, a particular milieu, if you will, which is someone who will lead and hold a group as the therapist or facilitator, or conductor, as Fuchs would have it, the originator of this, and then seven or eight people who would sit with this person and try to understand and work through what was going on for them in about 90 minutes of silence. So how easily we can grab some of the things that emerged from that and start thinking about them is, is up for grabs. But that's the sort of first point. So these are the people I'm just going to mention. That's the rest of the content is the bottom, um, bottom left. So first up, um, just to throw these ideas out you, is uh, a chap called Fuchs who came over to the UK, fled the Nazis and was working in Britain during and after the Second World War and specifically set up groups for military people in hospitals and worked to kind of found group therapy in the UK and as a significant figure globally. 
he came up with the concept of the matrix, which is this idea that in any group, there's multiple layers at which you are connected. So there's the very literal and physical at which we are connected here, and then you go through layers of psychoanalytic thinking, which would be transference, projection, ob objects and part objects that we kind of aren't fully conscious of. And then beneath that is a kind of shared collective unconscious. Has anyone heard of that as a sort of, I'm not going to ask you, Bad thing to do, isn't it? Ask you a sort of semi-rhetorical question for a whole group of people. I won't do that. Fuchs talked about specific phenomena that occur in groups, and he saw them as beneficial and helpful to help groups to move forward. So they are kind of what they, they look like. Mirroring is this sense of kind of the me in you and the you in me. So I recognize things in you that are existing in me, and vice versa. It can be framed differently in individual psychotherapy, but that's mirroring. Resonance is kind of what we all engage with frequently, which is where something I say clicks with something you say, and we sort of we share, we, we, we sort of popcorn off each other. The condenser phenomena, I, I'm curious about how this works on a more macro level, but that's essentially in a group where there's a sort of unease or an unsettling feeling, and then one person will be very upset. It, it's almost as though this rather more nebulous sense of unease and distress will be grabbed by an individual, which may sound a little bit unusual for you, but you, sort of, you can feel it in the group where suddenly something's not quite right, but one person holds it all. Amplification, my goodness, we've all experienced that, is that a feeling in a room, this room, if one person was to start, I don't know, doing some particular or, or expressing a particular emotion of joy or of aggression, that would then be amplified by being housed within a group. Location of disturbance is around... I think that's a particularly helpful thought because that's about, let's stop thinking about the person who's maybe most obviously manifesting the problem and think about it as a problem between people or within the whole group. So you don't start saying that's the problem. The problem actually could be structural oppression or racism or something else that's happening, not just they're the person with the problem. So a real curiosity about where's the problem located. I'll jump over the third one. I, I think it's just very, very interesting about what are we used to as the norms of a group? What, what is it that's, that's we, don't, we don't almost question? We just leap into a group, of a group, a society, and we don't even think, what, what's normal in this room in terms of my relationship to all of you right now, to the, to the day's conference, to the people we see out in London? I think we need to scrutinise that more. I like this last thought of Fuchs, which is that the entire process of therapy is towards a finding a more articulate form of communication, that we are trying to drag ourselves away from aggressive actions, to, to acting out in any form, to try to articulate our pain and distress, which I think links to Sally's sense that it's very painful to connect to some of these things, but if we can find a voice for them, that in and of itself is a very strong therapeutic process. So next, couple, next slide is the kind of, here's happy optimistic Fuchs, and then you've got someone who kind of just slams straight back into him and says, no, that's not how groups are, that's not something that can happen in group therapy. What you've actually got, Beyond was very keen on this idea that groups, when they work, can form a kind of really creative, thoughtful space. But actually, more often than not, what happens in groups is they collapse. They collapse down into one of these three basic assumptions, is what he thought, which is they become dependent. You form a group that is dependent on a leader. We don't realise we're doing it, but we kind of get sucked into doing that. Or, this is that sort of under threat, is sort of, or, or, you know, and one of our functions is to drag ourselves out of these three states. Uh, just a little caveat, with a lot of these things, this is people who have... I, I've come to, to see this as a very rich and fruitful area of thought, but I think you, I'm very happy for these to be challenged, for people to critique them, etc. I'm not saying these are sort of truth, these are ideas, and I think helpful ones. 
fight or flight is what you'd expect. That under threat, we, we become very combative or we want to run away from the group. As soon as a group is under threat, whatever it may be, your family, your local church group, your political organisation, I don't know, it, it, it collapses into fight or flight. And the last one is pairings, where you sort of split off into these sort of little groups of small people, smaller groups of people. There's a guy called uh, Hopper who added a fourth one. So you can see this is sort of, it's not a closed shop. You can bring more thinking to this domain, which is that in groups, there's also a desire to kind of just get lost within them, which is, I think, quite kind of seductive. And you totally merge yourself with a greater mass, whether it be a, on a football um, or, or, you know, last night at the proms. And then Nixon brought in the idea that, as soon, again, as soon as you form a group, there's actually actively going to be destructive forces trying to break a group. As soon as you form it, there's people trying to break it without being fully aware of the fact that they are. Because groups threaten us, because we feel like we lose our identity in them, we, might, we become very rivalrous and envious. So as soon as one's formed, there'll also be forces trying to smash them. So it's about being kind of alert to that process as much as anything. So my last whistle-stop foot tour on the entire theory of group therapy in five minutes is a guy called Irving Yalom, whom I kind of adore, and I think his writing's lovely. Um, he's really sort of blissfully optimistic, which I, appeals to me. Uh, and he had a dozen or so phenomena that he felt happened in groups, and I just highlighted in red uh, the ones that I think resonate most obviously in terms of this larger scale, but that's... Um, I, I'm not going to read all of those. I don't think that's helpful for us. But again, if you want, I can send you all my slides. I have no problem with that. Um, that is um, the basics of group analytic thinking, which you can ask me about. Or we can think if any of these things are helpful with thinking about how we respond to climate change. I've got a few images because, has anyone seen the film We Are Many? Yeah. How, how did, I mean, I was, I was in tears, actually, watching that. For those that don't know, it's a film made by a guy, um, uh, Amir Irani, uh, Amit Imirani, who, it was all about the Stop the War March in 2003, and it was the build-up to it, and it was a really moving film, because it was, I was on that march, as I'm guessing some other people in this room might have been, but it really had me thinking about large, large groups, and this is the next little chunk of what I'm going to say, is the incredible power, that's Tahrir Square, I've just got a few images, just to sort of almost put you emotionally connected to that sense of how incredibly powerful the moving those large events can be. But there's also a question of what happens afterwards, because I don't know about all of you, but after Copenhagen in 2009 and lots of other large movements of hope, what do we do afterwards? Um, Green and Common, and then the last one is that Stop the War March. And I think the film's really good because it's honest about how distressing it is that that did not stop the war. But there's also some very definite positives that can be taken from that march. It's, it's worth watching. So, when you do group therapy, um, you function in these smaller groups of seven or eight people, but also periodically, every few weeks, you will have a large group. And I can tell you, there's nothing weirder than being in a room with 50 people for 90 minutes with no agenda, and you just sit in these sort of circles and wait for something to happen. It's quite odd. Um, and you kind of, you do experience that sense of getting completely lost, but when you do speak or you say something, you suddenly feel incredibly alive. It's almost like a rush of, oh gosh. Um, but I think those larger groups, and I think perhaps those that actually, I mean, it's interesting we're doing this event today in a Quaker building where that sense of being open to silence in a larger group is probably not so alien. But I think phenomena that happen there, when you're in a bigger group, are really interesting around 
climate change because very, very strong feelings. And I think we had it this morning. I certainly did, listening to Kevin's talk, that it, you could feel the entire room experiencing something quite difficult with the content he was bringing and craving, I certainly did, some sort of hope, some way out from these really distressing content that he was bringing. So in these larger groups, how do we connect? How do we feel? How do we mourn? And how do we stay in touch with both thinking and feeling? Because what my sense was in the large group is that you could feel things very strongly and you couldn't think very clearly. And in a smaller group, you can think quite clearly, but it was harder to feel. And there's something difficult negotiated between those two. And certainly in that larger space in the light, I, I was here last year at the MEDAP conference and it was just either day, a day apart of a Bataclan um, slaughter. And you could feel that that was still resonating in the room the next day when an aeroplane went over and there was a kind of like, what's happening? So these things are sort of, there's a residue there as it were. Um, yeah, and I think again that's a question around leadership, that when you get a larger group we crave leadership but we also really want to destroy them, there's something peculiar going on there. Okay, last few slides, so now I'm going to take you into really the last um, bit which is, if you step into the sort of space of thinking about, and I'm a psychiatrist and also interested in psychotherapy so I have this sort of, well they're not necessarily at all in conflict, but you move into thinking about the unconscious, it's normally housed as the individual. What's my individual unconscious? How has that come to pass from my early childhood experiences, etc.? And then you have people, well you have Jung who talks about a collective unconscious and archetypes and the idea that all humanity might share particular facets. Then you've got this very odd thing of trying to draw together the social world, so things that have happened, whether it be World War II or the digital revolution, and then that, how does that impact on our sort of group unconscious? So I'm sort of, I'll give you a little definition of it here that might help. Um, this is Fuchs again. He says that society is inside the individual just as well as outside. And what's intrapsychic, i.e. inside us, is at the same time shared by the group. Unconsciously most of the time in either sphere except in the group analytic group. So when you take it into the group therapy setting, his idea would be you can see it a bit more clearly. But um, the borderline of what's in or outside is constantly moving and the experience of these changes is of particular significance. I just think it's the first bit of that quote I suppose is most relevant. The idea that we are holding within us, society is within us and external to us and I think we constantly break ourselves off into being individuals. Um, this is just to sort of reinforce the point, a guy called Norbert Elias. I just found this absolutely uh, compelling is that you I didn't realise I was brought up with this, but you have the image of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I mean, I presume everyone in the room is familiar with that as an image. And it's bonkers. Because it feels like a kind of challenge to push back at the idea that there's no such thing as a couple at the start of humanity. There's a community at the start of humanity. Of course it's mythic, of course it's from the Bible, and I'm not sort of in any way denigrating a sort of spiritual text, but I'm saying I think there's something in there about us having creation myths with very small a couple or an individual, rather than thinking a creation mission should start with a group, it should start with a community. That's how creation occurs. Um, I, there's a guy called Fahad Dalal, he's just a great thinker, he just talks about the fact that when you talk about the social unconscious at all, you've got to think about intersectionality, power dynamics, the fact that all of these, you know, all of the the racism that exists consciously will also be there unconsciously and all the other difficult prejudices we'll have. Okay, last couple of slides. I keep saying that, don't I? I'm not, I'm lying. I'm just giving you this monstrous amount of content. Okay, two slides, we're done. Um, 
So trauma, um, the difficulty with climate change and the trauma that's accompanying it is it's not a discrete event. It's not like I, I got knocked off my bicycle and that was on you know, last Tuesday. It's already happened, it's still happening, and it's going to happen. So our concepts of trauma in relation to psychological mechanisms and the impact, it's very, I think it provokes, it's very difficult. And I do, there's writing about, you know, as you just mentioned, around PTSD, and you're like, but it's still going on. It's not like I've suddenly stopped having the experience of climate change as traumatic, it's, it's now. Um, yeah, so the, Judith Herman writes beautifully about trauma, but she talks about the core experience of psychological trauma, disempowerment and disconnection. And I think that's very true. I think seeing asylum seekers I see and trauma victims, it's very, very lonely, very full of shame, very difficult. So again, it's about finding links and ways back. I'm just, the next two points are just what's the short-term and the longer-term response to threat, to, to threat or then to trauma. So this sense that we could end up sort of fight or flight, freezing, and, and, and these particular immediate responses. And then in the longer term, what this turns into is the sort of PTSD. You're kind of very emotionally numbed, you avoid things that might remind you of it, uh, or it suddenly comes back as sort of nightmares or re-experiencing. And again, I don't know how much we can draw on that thinking about psychological responses to trauma and climate change. Um, we can come back to that. I feel I just, in doing, obviously, sort of, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but I haven't given this talk before, and there's lots of thoughts I have, and I've probably put as much as we need in it. Um, yeah, that I, I could just actually stop there, because the next slide is another set of open thoughts. I could just leave it up. Um, but I think maybe I'll just focus on the last one to finish, which is that when I'm working with people who've been traumatised, so people who've experienced torture or very much more um, severe forms of torture and then have made their way to the UK, you have to be very, very careful, and I don't do the longer-term psychological work, around you need enough emotional engagement, enough a level of emotional arousal to, to form a meaningful connection and to work through the things that people have been traumatised by. But if you go too far and you, you, you start contacting that difficulty and trauma, you're in a very agitated and distressed state where you can't think. and you, you're, You've got this sort of window of going, I need to be engaged enough to do this emotional work, to go back, to look clearly at the thing I've you know, the thing that's happened to me, but not too much. And it needs to feel safe to do that. So there's two things of creating a space of safety and then looking at it with enough emotional arousal to then be able to work through it. I think there's something there about how we understand climate change. Because I can certainly feel myself slipping into above or below. So I slip into kind of like, I can't engage with this, it's, I'm emotionally dead, it's just not even registering. It's like you could just tell me something massive and horrendous and it just wouldn't register versus I kind of feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. I haven't had a panic attack, thankfully, but I kind of feel like I could be on the edge of one at Kevin's talk this morning. And it was just like, my God, this is just, I don't know how much, if this was a whole day of that kind of, so we need to find that window and it needs to feel safe to start working through it if we think about it in that sort of trauma frame. Um, I should probably stop there. There's lots of <laughs> thoughts. You've got 20 minutes. It's a very hot room. You can see the last slide. I have got actually another three slides. I'll leave them. We don't need to talk about them. <laughs>
eminent and highly you know, able to feel some of these questions. So I'd like to, if you'd like to. Okay, thank you. I'll take two questions. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm Caroline Jessel, NHS England. Um, I'm very, very interested in all three talks. And I just wanted to ask um, if we have any idea of the mechanism of um, the group communication that you've described and whether it has any connection with things I've read about, like the Kalahari Bushman man with the cranes being killed 60 miles away from exactly what that really is. Telepathic communication, do we understand any more about that now? Mm -hmm. Okay, can, can I take another the planet. Well, now related to that, does pride not have a part to play? Eco pride. It's our own behaviour we're responsible for. Should we not be encouraging and congratulating each other more in order to maintain our morale at a time when, yes, we feel defeated by the right wing politics? Okay, so, so <coughs> really sturdy questions. Thank <laughs> <Okay>. you. <laughs> It's two hours then. Yeah. Yeah. Who would like to start? Um, should I mention the first one? Um, that's a massive question, and I don't. I don't. The direct answer to do we know more about that mechanism, how people communicate in that community? I don't know. I, I, it makes me think I, sh I might go and have a look. So I don't know. What I can say probably is two answers: is that when you think about things in a group analytic setting, you step into the idea of the unconscious, which is that we're not just engaging with what we can consciously think, but there's also other things of which we are not fully conscious. And so there could be things going on there where people are communicating, sensing things, and experiencing things from others and within themselves. And, and I do, having experienced and, and thought about that quite a bit, subscribe to that. I think there's also very sort of things around just sort of nonverbal communication, and we, we pick up a lot. We are highly tuned social beings, as we all know. Um, I was just going to say in answer to the second man I, I'm a bit disappointed in myself um, I, I hope perhaps my tone of voice or my enthusiasm and sweatiness came across as the pride and hope because I, I threw a lot of stuff out there but I remain fundamentally optimistic actually and I think it's very necessary to keep reinforcing that sense of what we can do, what we have done and I think there's particularly a danger of the kind of people who come to this, organ this day and to MedAct that we sort of we carry the forlornness and the sort of the, the, the pain of it. And you're like, no, this is, we can, we can also carry the hope. You know, we don't have to be Cassandra. Yes, Sally. Um, I am not sure I've got anything to say particularly to your very interesting question, observation. Um, so I'm going to stick to the, what, you, what you asked over there. Well, the first thing was about education, which I think is absolutely fundamental actually. And uh, Thomas Jefferson said that we need education to help us understand our world so that we can hold our leaders to account. And I don't think we're getting that sort of education uh, nearly enough. And 
we need our curiosity boosted and uh, revered so that we can want to find out about our world and what's really going on in a climate where it's made very difficult for us to get real news. Okay, so I think, I think it's absolutely fundamental and it, it starts with, and I think teachers should be an awful lot more valued than they are. You know, there was a time when teachers, doctors in the local community, the priest, the teacher, the doctor, the lawyer, and so were, were the sort of significant local figures all, all uh, respected. So there's a huge amount needs to happen in education, I think. And I just wanted to pick up what you said about pride. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's false pride, and you're not talking about false pride, uh, which is arrogance. You're talking about uh, lively, uh, the kind of pride we need to strengthen our will to, to say, actually, you know, we need a world that, that serves us better than this. We're, we're worth more than this. This is terrible, you know. And, um, and I think that our culture uh, attacks our pride. If you, if, if you have anyone who works in the climate sphere, how often, and, and somebody makes an achievement, how often will you hear that voice, yes, but you know, and then something will be offered that all it does really is demotivates you. And I think that, you know, our, our hearts are in enough trouble at the moment uh, to, we need to take care of ourselves and, and boost our sense of pride and, as you say, congratulate and value uh, each other. Uh, and, and be really on the lookout for the degree to which, um, in our culture, it's absolutely fine to smash hope, um, you know, undermine people when they're actually really trying. So uh, I, I welcome your, what you said. Lisa, do you have any? Um, I, I think I'd respond to the point on education. Yes, it's our, it's our greatest hope, isn't it? If we can educate our children and people that come you know, behind us to critically engage with all of this, then then that's the best thing we can possibly do. I think. Um, so I would agree. I, I would I would be um, investing um, capital in all its senses in in young people and their ability to process this stuff on a scientific level, on a moral level, on a um, political level, really. And I think um, that would be a good place to invest our time and finance, really. Mm. I've got one response to the Kalahari question, which is uh, that um, one of the offshoots from uh, the, the Tavistock uh, was uh, the development of something called social dreaming. And I sometimes take part in social dreaming, it's where people meet regularly to sit down and share what they've dreamt about and associate to those dreams. And the dreams are seen as for the group, not interpreted as for the individual. And what's quite extraordinary is going along and thinking, well, I think I'll talk about that dream I had last night. I think it's probably something to do with... And somebody else has had a similar dream. And, uh, and we do know that some indigenous tribes did share their dreams, yeah. and so I think it's so it's so interesting. That's what mm -hmm. actually <laughs> makes me. I'm a bit like Jung, you know. I don't believe in the collective unconscious. I know it exists because people people share their dreams, and and somebody who's dream, running social dreaming very regularly told me last weekend that the the, the group she runs regularly, <laughs> the dreams are getting more urgent. Uh, 
but there's a there's a anyway, that's just a thought. So if somebody could switch some lights on, uh, that would be good. Uh, I don't know where the lights are. Sorry, I can put one of my slides back up. It just felt like it was a bit. As it was a, you as get more light that way. Light. That, that's like, you know, we've got a bit of light. Okay. That's, that's great. Yeah. So a couple more questions. One, okay, yes. Have any of the speakers got any thoughts about I don't know silence or denial? I find it kind of strange in myself that I'm thinking about climate change all the time. Like there's lots of aspects of my life story and my work that have made me very aware of it. But I actually talk about it very, very little with my friends and my family, even though it's so urgent. And that that seems strange to me. described by George Marshall as our socially constructed silence and another on active particular burnout. And I think they're linked because you were saying you're silent but you're constantly thinking about it and I think climate activists are constantly thinking about it. Hmm. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, have a thought about the second one and then leave the first one. Um, yeah, I've seen that phenomenon, and it's scary, and I've, I think I've experienced it, and it makes me think that we need to have a much more robust network for supporting NGOs, people working with climate change, people working in all of those fields. I think there's also something about the, the kind of personality temperament who works there. Like these, these are people who are very willing to push themselves to almost breaking point with how much effort they'll put in, and I think we need to have an honest question of going, how do we actually build a culture that's more nurturing in amongst these NGOs, that's one thing. Someone I didn't mention is Aaron Beck, who's the sort of founding father of cognitive therapy, and he had a triad for depression, which is having a negative view of yourself and the world and the future, quite a sort of simple schema, also thought of as hopeless, helpless, and worthless, and that's how you might go about thinking, diagnosing depression. And if you're working as a climate change activist, how often you might have a negative view of the world and the future most of the time. So you're kind of hitting two-thirds of of a depressed, a sort of clinical sense of depression relentlessly. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot of factors. I think the answer actually is we need to have much more honest conversations in that community about how we support each other. Um, but yeah, I think, I think specifically climate change does lead to quite a difficult set of feelings. There's an activist who I've heard speak. Uh, she does a very, a very uh, moving video and she worked in a number of other uh, fields campaigning, and then she started working in climate change, and she, she describes just how different it was. And, and, and actually, she, yeah, she had to actually get some proper advice on how to limit the time she spent in that field, how to actually have life, have fun, as well as, uh, yeah. So. I mean, I, I think it's because, um, on a simple level, Whatever you, however far you push things as an individual to try and counter climate change, it, it 
there's, there's no apparent impact on the wider picture, is there? So that's the recipe for burnout, I think. Um, and I, I think that's linked to why we in our communities deny it, because we also <coughs> have to get on with our lives, our families, our friendships, and um, uh, it's and in order to do that, y you have to suppress some of this and, and push it down. I think. So, so I, I'd like just to just to um, say I don't think it's all denial. I think there's an ongoing struggle as to when you're actually denying climate change, uh, minimising the problem, and when you're sort of deliberately tuning out, almost to look after the state of your heart. You know, we need, we need to look after the state of our hearts uh, in order not to get burnt out, and it's not all denial. And I think the struggle is, the ongoing struggle, is to try and learn to distinguish. It, it's just a struggle to try and constantly mm. feel, you know, what is this? Am I in denial? Or, or am I actually, you know, um, saying, look, uh, this is too much. You know, none of us can cope with too much. I mean, the other thing, just in terms of what you raised very usefully, all these group processes going on, and one of them is um, the large group um, locates a, a subgroup to do all the worrying, grieving yeah. about climate change. So, you know, and, and I think it's enraging, actually. So I think one of the, one of the burnouts is also anger. Anger gets infused in there because you think, you know, uh, so we can do all the crying and the worrying and the fretting, and then we can have this view of, you know, it, so, so we're, we're assigned to do, I think Kumi Naidu from Greenpeace said, you know, Greenpeace is people's moral conscience. They, they give yeah. all, and they give the feelings. I think feelings get distributed, and I think one has to take care to remember that, you know, yeah. Sally, have you got, or perhaps anybody in the audience, any thoughts about the, the, the silence, the way we avoid speaking about it? Um, I think, part, just a yeah. quick thought, I think part of it is finding the words. I think literally it's difficult to find the language. It's new, it's difficult. I think it's, it's a bit simplistic, but I don't know how often I talk about death and sex. Like, there are things that are quite hard to, to see. I think it almost hits in that category of, it's not going to be an everyday conversation, but it should be because it's around us all the time. I think it's I more know, than that, actually. Um, sorry, yeah. does somebody want to say something about that? I was just going to say yeah. that I wonder if there's a certain stigma attached that you'd be a bore and mm -hmm. engaging in that kind of conversation, you know, socially. Um, and that actually that kind of links with the whole idea currently mm -hmm. and a feeling towards, um, I don't know, there was a comment brought up during the elections, certainly, that people were fed up with scientists and fed up with research. And I think there's almost a movement against knowledge um, where people don't want to see that side yeah, of the picture. Okay. I've got people two people wanting to speak. Green, green t-shirt. This is a quick building. And George Fox, the founder, when he first started, he was constantly on the move. It's easier to talk to different people and, and, and spread the ideas. I hope all of you, some somebody on the tube, home or wherever, that, that this conference, that is easy to do. It's harder to do it to people who say, oh no, he's back on his, his usual, because I know, gosh, let's switch off. But he had to keep on doing that, and then after six years of doing it, he got 3,000 people from all over the country came and joined him at a meeting uh, in Bedfordshire, and, and from there on, it, 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 you know, despite persecution, they succeeded. Yes. Um, I've been working in the climate movement for 14 years now, and it's a constant, I, mean, I feel like it's just, and 
endless grief cycle. And I'm just constantly blowing out because something pops up. Like in November, the Arctic temperatures were 20 degrees above seasonal norms, and they're still 10 degrees above now. It's um, impossible to, to take on board a lot of the time. And Lisa, be careful with using the IPCC stuff because it's consensus material that is understated. And I think you'll find that actually we're outside the worst case predictions for all of it. So by all I understand why you use it, but, but you probably need to look at it a little more closely and go, actually that's consensus material and the reality is slightly outside of the worst case scenario. False information, which Sally mentioned earlier. Yesterday I was, um, I was Googling that 97% of all scientists um, agree that climate change is man-made. And actually what you'll see on Google is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of websites rubbishing it. Hundreds of them. I mean, it's a, it's a perfectly good study that's been done several times now, and yet what you'll see if you go and have a look for that information is it's not true, there are only 67 scientists involved in all of that, etc., etc. So there's, we've got huge forces that we're, that we're trying to deal with. And just finally, on the education front, I've been doing some research on how children are taking information on planting, particularly primary school children. There is no statutory obligation to teach anything about climate change to primary school children in, in England. Wales are thinking about it, but in England there is no statutory obligation whatsoever, which is, I find incredibly shocking when you think where we are today. I've got one more point on the silence, because we haven't covered that, which is um, to thoroughly commend the, one of the workshops, actually all of them are fantastic, but Saturday afternoon, the workshop from Climate Outreach, which is WWF, Climate Conversations. And George Marshall suggests to us we should try and have a conversation about climate change at least once a day with somebody. I, I often inflict taxi drivers with conversations and get it back. But I, I think there's something important about how we have the conversation, as well as the importance of having it and not contributing to the socially constructed silence. Right. Uh, actually, I'm going to ask somebody else because you've had, had a question. The next section begins recording now. Yes. Um, just to say, if anyone would like some resources that are about starting conversation about climate change, I've just worked on a project where we've used food as a way of talking about climate change. So, for example, very simple stuff like a food timeline looking at key moments through history, whether things have happened around food, health, and environment, but also just looking at everyday food items and talking a little bit about the resources, like water, for example, uh, similar to the topics earlier. So if anyone's interested in any resources, just let me know, they're free, and I can send you some links. I'm going to stop now. I think we've got, we could have actually spent a whole afternoon on this, and I think we've got an expert audience as well, from what I gather. Um, but some of us are around the rest of the time, so, so please uh, grab us a conversation. I have got uh, two copies of Sally's book on my little bookstall down there, if anybody would like. And uh, also information about uh, something called Carbon Conversation. So resources, the stuff on the Climate Psychology Alliance website. Um, let's keep the conversations going, threading through the science. Thank you very much indeed. Awesome.